Tom Rhodes, you're a funny man. Tom Rhodes, you're an international comedian. Tom Rhodes, karate kick, baby, oh yeah. Tom Rhodes, you're a groovy dude. You go all around the world telling jokes to all of the people. You are an international comedian. You're funny to everybody in every single country in the world. Tom Rhodes, I like you very much. I think you're talented and very wonderful. Tom Rhodes, you're the best guy in the world. I want to be your friend. You should call me sometime. Here is my phone number, 603-644-0048. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Rhodes. You're an international comedic sensation. Tom Rhodes. I like to listen to your podcast. Tom Rhodes. You're the best man to ever walk on the earth. Hey, if you like my podcast and you want to show your support... Please go to Amazon or iTunes and buy my live comedy recordings. And come see me live when I perform in your city. Shalom, amigo. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Tom Rhodes Radio. And greetings from a brutally cold New York City. I'd like to start today's episode by addressing a few of the emails that I got. Uh, Number one, Ray in Stockholm. He puts on the Swedish championships of magic and they're having amazing jonathan next year and the guy was touched and blown away by the uh episode i did with the amazing jonathan uh freddie freddie says tom Rhodes radio helps him get through the drudgery of work and that makes me happy because that's why i make everything to alleviate some of the stress and bullshit and suffering in everyday human life so i'm glad that tom Rhodes radio is helping you out freddie Freddie wants to know who was the Irish comedian that I was talking about who won the So You Think You're Funny contest in Edinburgh. That guy's name is Aidan Strangeman. He's a guitar, comedy, music act, and uh, I fucking loved him. I thought he was brilliant. Joel in Fort Worth, Texas. He's 36 years old. Wants to know, is it too late for him to get into comedy? Joel, you know my answer to that. Uh, what's better than doing comedy? What do you have going on in your life that would be cooler and more fun than doing stand-up comedy? And let me just remind you of a man named Jack Roy, who did stand-up comedy for a very long time, didn't get anywhere. I think he stopped for 10 or 15 years, and then he came back older in life to try comedy again, and that man you know as Rodney Dangerfield. Roger, in England, uh... I made him cry. He was driving from Cambridge to London. It's personal what he heard in the message. I won't say it. But that tickles me silly that uh, my podcast has affected somebody uh, that deeply. So that makes me happy. Uh, And it just, what a nice thought. Guy driving from Cambridge to London listening to Tom Rhodes Radio. That alone makes me happy. And James in London. Uh, The guy keeps sending me videos, like strange, interesting videos. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but he sent me a video 
of this bank robbery gone bad that happened in Los Angeles in 1997, 1998. I was living there. I guess it was 97. But these guys were in full body armor. They had AK-47s, and it went on for hours. And I remember watching it live on television, and uh, they ended up getting killed. But uh, I don't know why someone hasn't made a movie out of that. It was such an intense uh, standoff on live television. Anyway, keep those videos coming, James. I love them. It thrills me to death that I know uh, that I have listeners, so many listeners in Sweden, and I have a ton in London. And today's episode is a celebration of friendship and, I guess, kind of the city of London. One reason I keep going back to London, not only because it's one of the comedy capitals of the world, but because I have so many fantastic friends there. And today's guest is Pete Johansson. I love Pete Johansson because every time I run into this guy, I always have intelligent, lofty conversations. And uh, I, I love him because he's, he's not only a brilliant comedian, uh, but he, he, like myself, is someone who's trying to squeeze every drop of fun out of life. So uh, it's my pleasure to present to you now the one and only Pete Johansson. Pete Johansson, ladies and gentlemen. Pete Johansson. Oh, man. That sounds like Rupert Pupkin. Rupert Pupkin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Rupert Pupkin. What's your uh, going for Rupert That Pupkin? guy was committed to being on television. <laughs> True. No matter what uh, you say. Jerry, I mean, Jerry Lewis's best film. Yeah. Well, arguably. I mean, Bl- Flubber? Flubber? What was that? No. Flubber was good. Uh, I don't think he was in that. Was no, it? the original. No, no, no. That was, uh, <laughs> that was, that was Fred McMurray. Yeah, yeah. Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray. <laughs> Jesus, what a great I was thinking film. of The Nutty Professor. I get them confused all the time. Yeah, the, the Nutty Professor has got, the original Nutty Professor has got, the opening is like 10 minutes long. It's like excruciatingly bad. <laughs> really? But when he gets to the lounge, uh, you know, slick character, mm-hmm. Buddy Love. Who he claims that Andrew uh, Dice Clay stole his character off of. Oh. That well. was his big argument. The Dice Clay is just a... I can't. Why would you even claim that? <laughs> like, let it go. Somebody yeah. stole that turd off me. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we've been friends for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I met you in England, and uh, I Googled you, and I'm looking at your Wikipedia today. I have to, I have to turn this down, and I'm going to stare yeah, at it. Here, I'll, 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 I'll I'm so distractible. <laughs> by the, by those, the wave voice lines yeah, on yeah. the computer. Um, you too. We can hear it again. <laughs> it's hard not to look at it. It's so cool. Your father won the Stanley Cup? Not by himself, but he was on the team. I never knew that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Holy fuck. Your dad played for the Red Wings oh. and won the Stanley Cup? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I don't ever bring it up. <laughs> I think that says a lot about you as a person. Really? Yeah. Well, the man. fact that you, you wouldn't be bragging about, and especially, you know, there's so many Canadian um Friends of ours, comedians. It's a weird thing. Uh, I wasn't. Uh, I was never proud of it. I didn't like my father. I still don't. Um, he's an awful man. He's a cruel, unsympathetic uh, narcissist. Uh, with uh, perfect for hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to be honest with you, uh, part of, I have been I had a growing compassion for him as a human. Only later in life, as I've learned about brain injury and long-term and the way it affects people, especially since the study on the NFL players right. and how like uh, the head injuries that they constantly got 
uh, created personality disorders that they didn't know how to diagnose back then. But now when I look at those, I'm just like, Jesus, this is my dad. You know, like just quick to anger, like over nothing. You know, I remember my dad losing it over my mom said he acted like a Ukrainian once. And uh, such a strange insult. <laughs> I think my dad broke every piece of china in the house. You know, when he heard it, it was like the Hulk. Didn't enjoy that at all. Yeah, no, uh, strange individual. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm from a family of opposites. Like my, you know, two older brothers, uh, very right-wing Republican. Mm. And uh, and I think that's why I turned out to be Mr. Left-wing, open-minded guy, Mr. Sensitivity art person. Uh, certainly that must have had something to do with your intellect. I don't know. Uh, I think my mom had more to do with that about her instilling of curiosity. Like uh, she would encourage me to... Uh, look things up, be fascinated by stuff. I have to give pretty much all my artistic credit to my mom. You know, my, my father did everything to drill. I remember when I quit the basketball team, he was all about sports. He pushed me out of a moving car. Uh, I, was, uh, I told him because I was going to join the play and he called me a faggot and punched me and then opened the door and started trying to push me out of the car. You know, good parenting, stuff like that. That's so Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, we just watched it after Robin Williams died. Oh, man. And uh, a lot of Robin Williams movies were about suicide, but that one, the kid wanted to be, a, wanted to be in the play. Yeah. And his dad didn't want him to be in the play. Yeah, my dad was equally upset if I pursued anything intellectual, to be honest with you. He thought athletics was the key to divinity because uh, he was obsessed with God and everything like that. And he thought athletics would keep me moral, <laughs> which is hilarious. Wow, that's yeah. like uh, old English mentality. Yeah. That was uh, like when the Boy Scouts were formed. They thought that English boys were, were uh, sissies and that they needed to be toughened up. Yeah, I think it was. It's pre. I don't know uh, how tying knots and making uh, bird houses would <laughs> make you a tougher guy. Yeah, yeah, it's a. It, there is a sort of a different sort of parallel, but and it's also the naivety of of the athlete thinking that athletes were good people. You know, you know now and as we look back, and I, I would I would dare to say the. Uh, uh, the percentage of crime and rape and <laughs> and thug behavior of athlete pro athletics is probably a, a little bit higher than that of the base level of the public. My dad used to tell me and my brothers, uh, "I don't care who you marry, as long as they're tall," because I'm tired of watching our family sit on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> that I like that. Yeah, so we have good athletes. Do you have good athletes in your family? Uh, my brother John was a really good football player, American football. Right. You know. Right, yeah. And uh, rugby. Yeah. He enjoys soccer. I like, uh, yeah, soccer. Soccer, football, yeah. I don't like any team sport of any type. I enjoy watching college basketball a little bit near the Final Four. but Because of that, the purity of it? Money's yeah. not involved? Defense. That's the key word there. <laughs> I, I love watching good defense, but that's about it. Um, and then I like, so I'm a little bit French in my soul. I enjoy the solo sports, tennis, uh, you know, boxing, not MMA. Uh, yeah, so. I'm a, I love, I love yeah. boxing. I'm a purist. I love how you hold, held your hands immediately in the old school. Oh, no. Uh, underhanded. No, 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 Because uh, I, I, uh, I had this conversation with this uh, actor, Mark Farrelly. Mm. Uh, we were talking about Oscar Wilde. And how he was persecuted by uh, the Marcus of Queensberry because mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde was having an affair with his son. And I said, because... Is that Bozy? Yeah. yeah because, yeah. because I love Oscar Wilde so much, when I fight, I always fight dirty. <laughs> In honor of Oscar Wilde. Ah, uh, fuck. Yeah, Oscar Wilde. I... I uh... There's so much romanticism about him that's quite interesting. Yeah, he left. A, I always wonder what it's like to be his kids and wife. Yeah, <laughs> you know, everybody forgets about them. Yeah, and they didn't become writers. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a great statue to him in uh, Reading. 
uh, Oscar Wilde. Where the, where the jail was that yeah, broke him. Yeah. yeah. There's a great statue to him in Dublin where he's kind of reclining and his legs and it's kind of like he's right. got his... It's very um, sensual, this posture that he's sitting in. Yeah. It reminds... Have you seen... Have you been in New Orleans? Yeah. There's a statue of Ignatius Riley. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is there really? Yeah. <laughs> it's along the same... How, I think we've ostracized a, gr- a great deal of the listeners. Why don't we talk a little bit? No, more? not at all. And, uh, <laughs> if my listeners have never read Confederacy of Dunstans, it's one of the greatest books of all time. Yeah. Whenever we go to New Orleans and we see those hot dog carts, <laughs> I always think of Ignatius Riley. I can't believe that it still hasn't been a movie. The last, cha- the last gasp for it was probably with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think if, that would that would have been the last person I could imagine playing it. I think it went through John Goodman was tied with it, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman. But the fact that that's never reached the screen uh, sort of says something about the pompacity and the ego-driven self-centeredness of the uh, of the New Age American that I don't think uh, it was too prescient for its time. And now it appeals to it actually is talking about more people than I think it did when it was originally written. You know, like that 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 character was an anomaly at that time, and now it's the regular, like yeah, fleet other narcissist that believes in their own intellectuality more than anything else. Yeah, and the the, the kind of the loser outsider who doesn't uh, believe in conformity, and then he <laughs> he starts the, the the revolution within the the factory that he was working in. So I mean, that's America definitely. <laughs> We're not working in. <laughs> but uh, there was a, a, one of my favorite books of all time is Ask the Dust. By John Fonte. Never heard. And that was one that was tried to be made into a movie forever. Uh, And then it was made into a movie, I think, five, ten years ago with Colin Farrell. And usually I hate uh, favorite books that get turned into a movie. But that one was pretty decent. Um, I think, uh, who was it? The sexy... Mexican actress was in that film. Can't think of her name. I was a big fan of the book Breakin'. And uh, when they finally made <laughs> breaking one through four, I was like, <laughs> "Were you in a Vancouver uh, breakdance? <laughs> breakdancing? Did, no. Did you have like the satin jacket? <laughs> I remember cutting up, cutting up part of a refrigerator box and putting it in our foyer of our house, and inviting my family down to come watch me try. <laughs> you spent PE class uh, learning how to pop. <laughs> Guys, watch this. This is how gang gangs settle their issues now." <laughs> Uh, what are it's, what are some of your favorite books of all time? Uh, uh, probably uh, I don't know George Bataille, the story of the eye. Um, What's that? About? Anne Rand. I love Anne Rand's books just to piss off all the people that on the on the left wing that go she's an evil bitch. Uh, I enjoy her books because I can just look at the good part, not focus on the bad part, <laughs> which a lot of people don't seem to be able to do. Have you ever been to the Steve Allen Theater in Los Angeles? Uh, it's in this. Uh, it's in this think tank uh, atheist building, hmm. uh, and, and 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 you go into the, the opening foyer, and there's like around the the band around the ceiling. It's got Galileo and all these like uh, different um, uh, heretics, shall we say? Hmm. And uh, they have a box of Anne Rand's Fountainhead that, that, that's free. <laughs> They, yeah. They're just constantly. They they think kind of that's their see that's the atheist only, bible. In all in all honesty, that's the only good book she wrote. But uh, I've read them all, and I, I mean, Alice shrugged is a simplistic parable for greed. But uh, Fountainhead has an underlying story about integrity in it, and my favorite character in it is Peter Keating, the guy that sort of focused too hard on getting ahead without focusing on his own personal artistic ambitions until it was too late. 
And uh, I think it's a I, I think it's one of the best stories about integrity in any uh, novel. Even though, like, of course, the rest of it, you know, and the Dominique rape scene's a little out of line nowadays. But uh, yeah, no, I find her. I, I I don't understand the whole throwing people out with their bathwater. You know, like you can have just one good idea and it'd be worth reading something without going, oh, but they're for no altruism. Well, yeah, no, you make your own personal choices. They're not words. It's not fucking programming. You don't have to upload it and fucking follow it. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the... Am world? I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, you can say oh. cock, motherfucker, All right. dick lick, anything you like. I don't like any of those. <laughs> no? Well, what, uh, what are your preferred... Uh, uh, I don't have any. The ones that Curse come words. out when, I, when my brain stops coming up with adequate adjectives. <laughs> uh, another one of my favorite books of all time is Shantaram. What's that? That's a great book by Gregory David Roberts. And it's a true story, and it's like a thousand pages. Mm. And uh, the guy was a heroin addict. He gets thrown in prison in Australia. He escapes. He gets to India. And then his money runs out, and he ends up living in the slums. And his Boy Scout uh, medical treatment... Uh, knowledge. He becomes like the doctor of the slum. So he That's kind of finds redemption in his soul. And then he becomes, uh, he starts working for the, the uh, Mumbai mafia. He's selling, he's working in passports. Other ones are making porn and selling drugs. I love this. And then he gets sent to prison. And the opening page of the book, on the opening page, he says, I never realized what freedom was until I was hanging upside down in an Indian prison being beat with a club on my feet. Gorgeous. It's like, Gorgeous. Bow. Yeah. I heard Johnny Depp has been trying to make that into a movie, but that's it's oh. never happened. Sounds like his sort of speed. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's 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 had a couple of uh, a couple of duds. He needs to. Uh... He never had to worry about it though. He had an interesting sort of thing where. Uh, his first movie, uh, Edward Scissorhands, he was the youngest actor ever to get net points, or gross points, sorry, in a movie. So he made, I think, about $29 million off of that. So early in his career, it allowed him to pick and choose artistically for years without feeling the financial impact of it. So he did, if you go back, there's like a, a series of about four years where he did things like the Arrowtooth Waltz and uh, uh, the, the one where um, uh, uh, Jim Jarmusch directed where he's uh, uh, an Indian. Oh, yeah. The, uh, yeah, where he, it was, he's yeah. like William Blake or yeah, something. Yeah. It, it's a weird concept where he's like William Blake mm -hmm. if he's thrown into the old West wilderness. Yeah. And the, 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 it's an okay movie, but the thing about that movie that stands out in my mind is... Um, when I tried to quit smoking cigarettes and wherever he goes where, or wherever they're going in the wilderness, everybody keeps Everybody keeps asking him when he pops up, got any tobacco? <laughs> you got any tobacco? They're all just like jonesing for tobacco. Jeez, you make me want to smoke through this. This is fantastic. I want to sip your coffee too. It smells so good. Would you like a cup? A I can. Intimate. Here, I'll make you a cup of coffee. Don't make me a cup of what, coffee. Uh, what, what, Jim Jarmusch. Oh my God. I just got, um, oh my God. Down by law. You ever seen that film? <laughs> yeah. Great movie with Tom Waits oh. and uh, the Italian guy. Uh, oh, Christ, I love Tom Waits. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 we're, we're just talking about other stuff. It's fine. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't, I don't know what your podcast is about, but if it's about, uh, it's just what about books we like and, and uh, artists that inspire and, uh, us. <laughs> it's about tickling people's brains with knowledge. I don't know if we're tickling them with knowledge because we're just reciting things we know. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about writing a book? Yeah, but uh, I've, the fact that I never joined the army and learned no discipline has been holding me back. <laughs> I wish. I wish I had that sort of... Um, I mean, I, the other day I compiled all the posts I did on Facebook and looked at the word count, 
And uh, I would have been able to write two novels in about 500 pages had I just done that instead of posting things. How can you compile your Facebook? Oh, you can go to your personal settings and have download your, uh, your, uh, your uh, post history. Oh. And then I put it in a word processor to just see what the count was out of curiosity. I could Holy have, shit. Yeah. Could have written the Bible, but I didn't. <laughs> what, what was the uh, the Facebook knowledge you were you were just telling us about the the posts and the oh the analytics and the way that they uh, throttle your posts if you do them too quickly next to each other and the different order of importance versus visual media that they're pushing yeah it's just they they hired a whole bunch of uh, psychologists and advertisers to see where they could uh, get the best effect for creating memes that they can advertise and link off of and photo and video based seems to be their the, the money makers for them so they've throttled down just word posts <laughs> unless they're life stories and if you include it in a life story it'll it'll show up on everybody's timeline so a great thing to do would be to uh, say you're getting married every day and then put a funny post in the top <laughs> <laughs> do you think Facebook and social media helps comedy or I don't know I, I have no idea it's an interesting debate in my own personal head in the in personal head like that has to be specified uh <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thought, though. It's like it, it certainly makes me think about writing funny quips more uh, than I used to. I mean, I certainly write a lot, and a lot of my shows come from posts. Like this Edinburgh show I just did, I'd say, you know, about probably 15 minutes of it were things I tested out by posting previously. Whether they're concepts or jokes, I'll test them both, you know. Uh, like just an idea to see what people respond to an idea and then if they're jokes you know I'll, I'll try them out and see how it reacts and I find that a, a, a initial first entry into an idea to see if it has sort of broad appeal because you know how we're always wondering if people see things the same way we do or if we're just lunatics we have that inner monologue all the time like I might be just nuts and then you go and you say it to somebody and they're like oh yeah I get it but you know they're lying so but if you do it on a post then people won't waste their time saying this is good they'll just ignore it so I find it's kind of a nice medium for testing ideas. Whether it makes me a better comic or not, I don't know. I find Edinburgh makes me a better comic because I panic over having an hour's worth of material every year. <laughs> that makes me a better comic more than anything. You had probably my favorite joke this year at the Edinburgh Festival. The the whole thing about the bee taking down the World Trade Center. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. Have you, have you recorded that on any album or special? No. No, I've got... Because that's like a five, ten minute bit yeah it leads up to this fantastic ending that i just gave away well it's a parable about racism and the way we are afraid of different cultures but and how uh, i'm being mocked by a racist about my fear of bees <laughs> and then defending it with uh by taking apart their racism towards uh islamic culture yeah uh, why are you so afraid of bees and hornets well this is the question that i that gets asked i don't know it's a phobia I mean, there's so many reasons. I mean, look at bees. I mean, they're perfect Marxist utopian society and amongst a free market capitalist world. What's not to be terrified of them? They're proving, uh, they're, they're absolutely disseminating and taking apart Milton Friedman's economics. And nobody's getting paid. Everybody's working to each according to their ability, for each according to their needs, to the point where they profit so much that they split and divide population-wise every six months. I mean, that's, that's a complete mockery of Western capitalism. But hey, what's to be afraid of? <laughs> what a coincidence. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> and I love that we call them a monarchy. <laughs> when clearly there's nothing monarchist about it. The queen? The queen's not a monarchist. She's, she's, a, she's a willing sex slave that participates in the necessities of a community. She does not lead anymore. She just provides sort of a, of a, of a, of a, of a bath of children. 
Then you've got your drones, and you've got your workers. I mean, then your defenders. There's so many interesting, like, sort of a, a setups that, that made them so incredibly successful, yet they call it a monarchy? Ugh, not at all. It's not top-down. It's bottom-up. What is the study <laughs> of insects? Entomology? Entomological studies. Are you, yeah. are you, uh, did you ever study that? I mean, you, no. Or you just <laughs> Dude, spent thousands I'm, of hours on the Discovery Channel? I'm a comic. I smoke pot and I watch <laughs> Richard Attenborough, or David Attenborough. Richard's gone, sadly. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I, I interest in pretty much everything. That is the one thing my mom gave me is an utter... It's the fucking best thing that I don't know if they teach as much anymore, but curiosity. If I was curious about anything, she'd she'd get she'd never say no. She'd wide-eyed. We'd go to the encyclopedias and we'd start looking it up together, and and she'd reward me for my curiosity. Everything I was ever wondering about until it came to you know sex, but <laughs> and it stopped right there. But uh, yeah, no, uh, I I I wonder if sometimes I, I I see that lack of curiosity in other people, and I wonder what the parenting situation must be like. I wonder if it's my father that inspired it because I didn't want to be like him, or my mom who inspired it by being so uh, excited when I was curious. You know. Well, that's what you know. I mean, most comedians are of a higher intelligence, but uh, you're never boring. I always enjoy talking to you whenever I run into you. It's because I always give you drugs, man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I don't think weed counts as drugs. But uh, uh, the uh, uh, what is the milk qualifying for American audiences? I love it. What is the Milton theory of economics? Well, Freeman, uh, it's baseline. It's based upon the sort of the personal selfishness of man. Uh, game theory that was come up by the Princeton professor that was a paranoid schizophrenic that they based a uh, beautiful mind after. Um, the whole idea that uh, in any given situation of transaction, uh, ultimately human nature will always make us make the, the one that has the most self-interest in it. Therefore, uh, we'll always act selfish when it comes down to it, even though we'll claim that we won't claim all. Even though studies have proven that this is a more of a male characteristic and a Western world characteristic than it is anybody else's. You know, uh, we've, and we've been conditioned towards it through, uh, you know, generations of marketing, uh, at least two, three generations of constant marketing in our lives, that filling our lives with words like reward, uh, treat yourself, uh, you deserve, <laughs> you know, think, words that dissipated out of our society that may have created different spots, sacrifice, humble, <laughs> think about others, compassion, all those words eliminated in the sake of creating a consumerist economy based upon personal self-interest. And defining ourselves with our purchases. Blah, 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 blah. Let's talk about funny stuff. <laughs> now, uh, but, but you're Canadian. I mean, that's, that's, that's it's, I mean, the, the American view is that Canada is a socialist society. Is that good coffee? Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's good, 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 for, good. Especially for instant. That's yeah, it's freaking, espresso instant. That's amazing. Yeah, the normal instant sucks, but espresso instant's fantastic. That's really yeah. good. Yeah, when you're in England and you can't. Good cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, I miss I miss good consistent coffee. Oh, everywhere it's just so just a little bit fucking off. The worst is Australia for coffee. The worst because they claim it's the best, but they like browner beans than we like the black beans, so they have a very acrid, bitter aftertaste. But most of them don't have straight americanos. They drink it with milk, so that makes sense because it's you know nullified by the milk. I like it black, just like you like it black, and that acridity it's too harsh. Anyways. I'm offended by things that are called Americano. Like that coffee, what is espresso with like two cups of hot water put in? We don't drink that shit in America. Know, but that's, and then that's in because Holland, they have this American spread. Yeah, but the Americano comes from World War II when the GIs would come through and they had the old, uh, remember the old bald eagle uh, espresso machines, the big gold ones that would sit up there with like 
15,000 BTUs of pressure in them that if they ever exploded to take out a city block, they'd put out a little espresso cup, right? And the Americans, they'd give it to the GIs and they wouldn't like it, so they'd add hot water to it. And that's where the Americano comes from. Ah. Is the, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a watered down version of the espressos that the Americans couldn't handle. So it's an Italian name. It's not even ours. So it's not like we gave ourselves credit for anything. So. Oh, okay. Wonder. So my people are to blame for that. No, no, it's not to blame. It's just that it's an Italian short language for uh, they don't want an espresso just straight out of the machine. They'd like a little bit of water. But they have a progressive attitude towards marijuana, which is refreshing and nice, versus, let's say, our neighbors to the south, where they're not quite as understanding. And I didn't realize that until I did a little really research. When we tried to legalize marijuana about seven years ago under Cretchen, and uh, we're about to actually pass a bill. And why it stalled in Parliament? Because the United States paid for lobbying vis-a-vis -vis the DEA. They paid millions and millions of dollars to lobby our government to not do something that 80% of our population was okay with, which I find pretty shocking that they would come into a sovereign country and push our government. Because I don't remember us ever going down there and lobbying them to read books. <laughs> or get curious. <laughs> that they know what's best, that they know what's good, and they obviously know what's good because they've really made the economy of the world a beautiful place today. We <laughs> got a lot of foresight there. Losing $720 billion. Their fucking bank needed to bail out. They banked, you know, we need to really? So, and then you know why? What happened to it? Ah, oh, you wouldn't understand. Fuck, really? I've never, that excuse never works for fucking me. Have you ever tried? Hey, Visa, I can't pay this bill. Well, what happened to it? Ah, oh, you guys wouldn't understand. I'm going to need help from everybody with this. This is a, whew, I'm not fucked up. Oh, they're weird. We're getting the Olympics in, in a couple of years, and the U.S. is even better than that. The U.S. is who pushed the Olympics. When you win a gold medal in the Olympics, they take you away right after your gold. You're like, Daddy, you can finally love me. And then right after that, they go, hey, pee in this cup. And they test the urine that you pee in. And they test it for things like blood boosting, steroids, amphetamines. And they fucking test it for weed. Why? If you win a gold when you're high, you deserve two golds. <laughs> for showing up. <laughs> Skipping cartoons, catching the right bus. These are all metal events. There's a disconnect from reason in that situation, isn't it? They turned it into this fear-based thing where we just react and we don't think through. Yeah. It's too bad affecting the Olympics like that. I love the Olympics. I think it's the only sporting event I really get excited about. I love this year's. This year's was really, you got to give the Chinese credit. They did a fantastic job. It was cool. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I've never thought there was more creative cheating. Uh, yeah, they, they were, they thought it through. I, I'm sorry, my best thing, that, my favorite thing that they did cheating-wise, and tell me if you know about this, was the uh, Chinese women's gymnastic team. Yeah, you heard about that? Or are you just clapping because they're fucking hot? <laughs> Granted, but they were 14 years old. Yeah, they gave them fake passports. To, prove, to say they were 16, because, of course, 14-year-olds are more flexible. I, I've heard that. I don't know. That. Um, and because of that, they won all the gold. And I think that's amazingly intuitive and smart, you know, on the Japanese or the Chinese uh, part. But um, now, here's the weird thing about this, is now that the uh, IOC has found out about it, they're actually talking about possibly taking away the gold medals. And now that kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Can you imagine taking a gold medal away from a little 14-year-old Chinese girl? How, wouldn't that just tear your heart apart? God, 
I hope that they do do that. At least somebody goes up to these little girls and tells them they're already winners for not being drowned at birth. <laughs> I love that because you have no idea how to react to it. Like, there's part of you going, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> Drawn in two directions by that. And but I hope if they do take away the gold, somebody talks to these little girls and lets them know, hey, listen, you're already winners for not being drowned at birth. <laughs> you guys don't know who to be angry at. Thank you for your class. That's a good joke. Somehow you're blaming me for doing it. Uh, why do, why are Canada's best comedians all living in England? Uh, it's a difficult thing about being Canadian. I mean, it's such a, it's an interesting country and it's full of a lot of, um, great qualities. And I love, I, I mean, I miss Canada every day of my life, but entertainment's difficult in Canada because we grow up next to this huge behemoth, which, which is American culture, which we both admire and hate at the same time. And we use America more to define ourselves by what we're not rather than embracing what we we like. And as an entertainer there, uh, we're brought to think of ourselves as second, second tier. And so you can't really become, it's difficult, you can do it, but it's very difficult to sort of become successful in Canada as just a Canadian without leaving the country. I mean, Canadians don't really look at you as successful until you come back from someplace else and you've proven yourself elsewhere. It's just a psychology. It's the exact opposite of Australia. <laughs> I mean, Canadians don't flock to a show at the at the fringe if they see a Canadian on it. If anything, they'll avoid it because they're like, oh, Christ, he's Canadian. It's probably not that good. Uh, whereas Australians, they see a sign, oh, hey, it's one of us, mate. And they all flood in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so naturally supportive. I mean, we've got a lot to learn with uh, when it comes to uh, how to define ourselves with pride and things like that. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's necessary that we're this sort of self-doubting, humble, yet pompous nation that doesn't know exactly what it is. But we know what we're not. <laughs> I love Canada. It, like Canada, it, I think is very similar into Holland. To Holland, in a lot of ways, that they always welcome people from war-torn countries, uh, people from impoverished countries. Well, we used to be like that. I mean, Canada as a notion is not what Canada is anymore. Canada, uh, the Canada under Pierre Elliott Trudeau, where he, he wanted to create a, a nation of peacekeepers. You know, the original conflict in, in Cyprus, the first peacekeepers there were Canadians by the UN. That was the first deployment of peacekeepers in the world. Um, he wanted that to be Canada's symbol to the world as a, as a level-headed uh, nationalist. And Trudeau, what an incredible... You don't have leaders like him anymore. I mean, Trudeau is this incredible prime minister that... You just don't see. First of all, he's a he's a French native in a in a majority English country, right? He went to Harvard, did a his PhD thesis on communism and religion and how they coexisted. But after he published it, the FBI banned him from entering the United States because they thought he was a commie. Went to the Sorbonne, studied for two years. Went to the London School of Economics, studied for two years. Put down his stuff and decided to hike all the way to Vietnam from Paris. So between wow. 1949 and 1953, he hiked across. 
uh, Europe, across the Middle East, who was around the formation of Israel in 49 to 52, got arrested by both sides as a spy. The, the Islamic side thought he was a Jewish spy, and the Jewish side thought he was an Islamic spy. Uh, went through uh, Iran during the toppling of Mossadegh. Uh, the leader by the CIA was in uh, uh, southern uh, China when the boxer uh, or the uh, the purging of the um, uh, uh, the revolution. Uh, sorry, the um, sorry, too much coffee, not enough brain power. <laughs> the um, Cultural Revolution, um, and then was in Vietnam at the beginning of the Frencho Cambodian or Frencho Vietnamese War conflict in the Indochina. And uh, so he had all this world life experience where he saw these things, came back to Canada and realized that uh, it's not our place to fix things. It's our place to be there uh, when people need our help. And it's sort of an interesting sort of idea of, of seeing imperial uh, uh, empiricism as a, as, a, as a lending hand rather than one of condemnation and direction because each area has to solve their own crises on their own sort of terms. And he brought this into Canada. That's why we became allies with Cuba and pissed off the Americans so much and allies of, of China and allies of, of Russia in the middle of the Cold War, you know. And uh, he only was allowed back in the States as soon as he got elected prime minister. They had to bar him until that moment. He was blackballed. Nixon called him um, uh, an asshole on the on the secret White House days. <laughs> There's a famous thing. And then when he was confronted by it, he, on the steps, he calls, I've been called worse by better men. <laughs> like just an incredible leader this uh, uh you don't get the pseudo intellectual uh pol politicians anymore nobody has time for that you know and he was the closest thing we ever had to like beatles beetle mania in canada i mean he was he was he was our kennedy is there a definitive biography on him i'd oh, love to many read. many like he's an incredible uh incredible leader he got us our charter of rights and freedoms he defined us as a nation on so many levels and a lot of people still hate him out west because he tried to nationalize he wanted a strong federal government and a weak pro a provincial system while still keeping quebec inside of canada and i mean a lot of people hated his vision for things but it was one of fairness and social justice and that's been completely torn apart in the last years by we had basically a coup d'etat with Stephen Harper after two after we didn't support the U.S. going into Iraq, the U.S. right wing went ape shit on Canada. They basically uh, had a propaganda war against our government while Kretchen was in. And Kretchen was a great, I think he was a great leader. He was, a, he was one of uh, Trudeau's compatriots. He's a, a man who stood up for things. He was the only Western nation that looked at the U.S. at a time where a friend needed to go and said, Iraq had fucking nothing to do with 9-11. Nothing. And we, were the only, and we didn't go into it. And the U.S. put trade embargoes on us, slapped the, the new passport restriction on coming across the border, all that shit. Um, which is kind of a ludicrous thing because 90% of Canadians own passports and only 15% of Americans, so it just made it more difficult for Americans to come up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was just such an interesting sort of thing to see what happened. And then all this money started flooding into the right-wing parties in Canada, especially the oil-liberalized, uh, neoliberalist sort of organizations funded by the Nationalist and the, and the Progressive Conservative Party. So we got Stephen Harper in. Stephen Harper is worse than Bush. He is uh, in the pocket of all petrochemical companies around the world. And the, what's happening in the northern tar sands right now, which is the single worst environmental disaster on the planet, it's taking place in Canada and completely glossed over in the media. Our scientists are shut down to talk about it. it it's a travesty. Canada got booed out of the last two conferences on, on climate change. Uh, and people wouldn't talk until booed Canada out. booed out. <laughs> wow. That's how much we've fallen stature-wise. This is the country that founded Greenpeace. And now we're a fucking laughing stock of the world. So when you say uh, Canada is all this, understand Canada is not all that. We're a country of short-sighted dipshits right now. <laughs> and we need to change. And it's coming in the fact that Trudeau's son is running for prime minister next election. And I'm going to go back to Canada and work on his campaign.
Wow, that's fantastic. And wasn't uh, Trudeau Sr., didn't he hang out with the Rolling Stones? Didn't, yeah, well, didn't his wife have his sex wife with Mick Jagger? I think it was the other one she had sex with. Which one? Uh, Keith Richards? Uh, I don't know. I, well, like while he was prime minister. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was a pretty... They were that's like something Canadians are very proud of. We're, kind of, we're kind of swingers. Come on, yeah. I really like it. <laughs> what, what up? What up? What's, what's with your American sex guilt? <laughs> Relax and get your dumb. No, I mean, it's like... It's, uh, among all those other things, wow, they're hanging out with the Stones. It is kind of interesting that that's the focus and biggest memory of, of uh, Margaret Trudeau. I mean, he married this woman. She was 21 years, I think it was 21 or 19 years as his junior and attractive girl. And, you know, and uh, I mean, he did a lot of cool things. He legalized abortion. He legalized gay, uh, not marriage, but gay, you know, being gay. It was the, the first two things he did when he got into office in 68. You know, he's a very social progressive people. But that's the that's the, the catalyst when you're raised in a in a Catholic-dominated Quebec, that where the, basically the church dominated every aspect of life, and that whole generation, the Velvet Revolution that they had, uh, sort of went against that whole sort of thing and became very secular. What other uh, knowledge nuggets about Canada? Can you give me? <laughs> I, I mean, that's fantastic. I want to get a. I want to get a biography. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's somebody that's that, fascinating. Well, I'm, Canada's done a bunch of biographies on. Uh, like he, he's got he's got an interesting. I think they've done two television series. One, the Young Trudeau, and one uh, in his older years and stuff like that. I haven't seen either of them, but uh, I just. It's an inspirational thing when you look around the world and you see what type of leaders we have right now. It makes you pine for something that was just 30 years ago. It wasn't that long ago that somebody like this could get elected. And you know somebody like him could never get elected now. Like, we've changed the game so aggressively into giving a shit what somebody's personal life is like. Or, uh, you know, like, just base short-term economic being the only sort of thing that our society wants rather than how... We want to make the world a better place or having a mission statement as a country to be peacekeepers. I mean, what a simple thing to say about a country that can change the entire way people feel about them is that we won't get involved in conflicts as fighters, but only to create peace. Where's the nations doing that now? Where's the nation with a mission statement like that that will step up in the world? But it can't because we're no longer run by governments. We're multinational corporate agendas that are, you know, that are then policed by nationalistic militaries. Well, I think I kind of expected that from Obama, that he would be that yeah. kind of guy, the, the socialist. And as much as, you know, the right wing says he's a socialist, he's not at all. He's no. like a he's like a center-right Democrat. Well, can we just come right out and say Americans don't know what the fuck socialism means, period? Yeah, period. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, never has there been sort of a, a word that's been completely thrown about with no comprehension of its meaning. I mean, no, and then like liberal, it was made a, a dirty word during the Bush administration. What to be a a, a reasonable, open-minded thinker? Well, what they're doing with the with the with the word socialism and communism is they're marrying two vastly paranoid groups together in their fears. Um, as soon as somebody hears socialism or communism, if you're a Christian or, or or a religious person, immediately you think about the atheistic overtones of the fact that uh, oh, communism said that you know there's uh, atheism is 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 you know there's no God, the opium of the mass. Is what's, what have you. So they're terrified of communism, right? So you've married this extremist, even though a lot of them are poor and their own self-interest would be benefited by a more generous sort of taxation system, but they can't see that because of their fears religiously. 
Um, but socialism has no overtones of atheism. Socialism uh, it coexists with social uh, with religion everywhere, like particularly Germany. <laughs> the Christian socialist parties that exist in Northern Europe are very aligned with a with a deification in religion, and yet still acquire social justice. But you can't teach that to the right because there's married the two so aggressively together that any type of act of social justice is also an act of atheism. And that was the powers that be that married those two on purpose. You know the 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 anti-FDR crew, you know, the, the incredibly wealthy uh, group that set about to tr sort of take apart everything the FDR did in the 1930s till now by, you know, disseminating the sort of marriage of, of godlessness with the social charity. And they were incredibly successful. I mean, there's no references in any type of educational, you know, in any schools of, you know, socialism next to the difference between communism and any of the American schools. You just get taught it as all a broad stroke, whereas in Canada we're taught different spectrums of politics. You know, we had our socialist parties, we had our communist parties. They never did well, because nobody really wants to have pure communism. It's kind of a, you know, unless you're a bee. I mean, bees want to. They can't vote. It's just for now. But once robots start working, let's see where they get the vote. <laughs> we'll see. Everything will change then. <laughs> well, what's going to happen with Canada now? You think they're going to stay right wing and push harder? Well. And give up their... Uh... It'll be interesting because there's going to be more money flooding into this election probably in the history of the world. With but, all the fracking and oil. and Well, yeah. Uh, the, the oil is, uh, depend is flowing now. And that's something that wasn't before. So you're going to be looking at China, the U.S., a lot of European countries that are, it's in their best interest to keep Canada conservative. So it'll be interesting to see how they frame this election to the people. And now you've always got Alberta, which is the Texas of Canada. We call it Saudi Alberta because they're all subsidied by their sort of oil rates, which is interesting because the oil profits there. This is the most boring comedy podcast ever. I'm not, <laughs> I, I, no, I, I think it's fantastic. But it's Alberta, which is the one province that benefits the most from the oil trade in, in Canada, it's doing quite well financially. But the, the mockingly irritating thing about this is you look at a country like Norway, where they collect 8% royalties off of their oil sales, and they have a $1 trillion dollars surplus. Canada has a deficit. We sell off and only Alberta benefits from our, our royalties at about a rate of 1.5 to 2.6% depending on the company and Canada itself only gets a 1% on top of that. If we just asked for what Norway had, at least then there'd be sort of a, an economic bonus to our country but that's how you can tell the right wing fucking underarm petrodollar controls fucking Canada is that we can't even get a deal that Norway has and they're not exactly you know, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense you know, as we're talking talking about uh, Canada prospering off of what we're doing with our natural resources, then let's take 7% and let's take maybe 2% of that and put it back into environmentalism. Let's be planting trees. Let's be trying to save some of the damage that the tar sands doing. At least then there's a moderate sort of way that we're extracting sort of profit, but at the same point we're caring about our planet at the same time. But ah, ah, and that, and tell me that wouldn't make jobs. You, know, you got another, you got a, you know, another $400 billion going back into environmentalism. That's all jobs. That's jobs, but they don't want that. Speaking of environmentalism, my one of my all-time favorite Canadians is David Suzuki. Oh, I love him. I David used to see, Suzuki, Jesus. I used to ride the bus with him in Vancouver. Really? Yeah. Whenever he took the kids' bus downtown, if he was like going, he took the bus. He took the city bus everywhere. He was like a Ed Bigley Jr. in Los Angeles. I was on the bus in L.A. because I was poor. And uh, in Vancouver, you do it because you're because you're environmental. <laughs> I love the difference between the cities. But I used to see Ed Bigley Jr. on the bus in L.A. I always thought that was interesting. Uh, no, Suzuki is amazing, incredible man. His answer for everything is uh, everyone should have more sex, basically. <laughs> the, 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 to be Without reproducing. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's someone I think should be heard more often. Well, his inspiration, The Silent Summer, uh, that famous book from the uh, uh, 1970s, uh, Silent Spring, sorry, about uh, that's what got him into environmentalism from his biolo- biological uh, PhD, is where the DDT was killing all the birds uh, so that you'd have these springtimes that would be very quiet by comparison because all the birds were dead. And uh, it started the whole Earth Day movement in, in around 1970s. 71 was the first Earth Day, I think. And all that was like that really sort of hit him hard. And what he's done for Canada and the elevation of scientific literacy for the country has been fascinating. Like his show, The Nature of Things, has been on for years. It's one of my favorite shows. I just love it. From a kid, that was like, I, I, I couldn't wait for it to come on. It was always so interesting. So about, and he, he talks about human, in, when he talks about the human impact, he talks about it from a compassionate understanding that we make mistakes point of view rather than this condemnation. You know, like it was sort of like, oh, well, okay, we did that. And I did that. My family did that. But what could we do? What do we know? What do we know now? And it was always like you weren't being punished for not understanding, but you were being invited to be be knowledgeable and rewarded for it. Oh, God, yeah. I think he was the third most respected Canadian in history is uh, Suzuki. I think the number one is Tommy Douglas. He won. Who was that? The guy who brought in socialized medicine. Uh, number one, isn't that interesting? Yeah, <laughs> Your, two, two yours is probably the last. <laughs> the guy, the guy that brings in Obama, he'll come in like last on your yeah. list. Right in some, not really socialized though. Um, number two, I think was Trudeau. Uh, uh, number th- number three is either Terry Fox or Suzuki uh, up there. Yeah. What did Terry Fox do? That was the uh, he was my hero when I was growing up. Yeah, he's uh, he he lost a leg to yeah. cancer. And uh, he decided he was going to run across. This is a this is a typical Canadian hero. Uh, he uh, loses a leg to cancer, and he says he's going to run across the country, and he doesn't. He dies halfway. Did he really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's one of our greatest heroes. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't set up, we don't have George Washington cuts down a cherry tree and won't tell a lie. <laughs> we've got we've got a guy who loses. His, I love the, I love the deification of American presidents more than anything. The the well, it's all mythology. They oh, never he never cut down a cherry tree. Oh, and said I know. He Lie. But that's what you're taught in school as a kid in yeah. the U.S. And our first prime minister was a drunk from Glasgow that used to pass out every day in the House of Commons. And they had a royal wheelbarrow that they took him home in when he started to throw up. Really? <laughs> yeah. John A. Macdonald. Was, we, we were taught in school he was an alcoholic. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because we were, we're taught mythology in the United States. And then our history goes up to, like, when I, when I was in high school, our history books go up to World War II and us saving the world. Yeah. And then it ends. They never mentions <laughs> Vietnam. Never mentions Korea. It's very Korea. similar. Very similar Similar to the German textbooks. <laughs> they don't go much after that. Me and, me and Craig uh, years ago went to the Austrian Museum of, uh, of War, which starts in the 600 AD from the Austro-Hungarian Empire all the way until 1938. <laughs> and we're like, there's got to be another wing here, right? <laughs> oh. Now, you do a lot of the, the worldwide comedy circuits. I do. What are like some yeah. of the, the, the wildest, most or most inspirational moments of beauty you've had traveling the world as a comedian? Oh, well, that's a tough one, hey? Um, I really enjoyed when the comedy store was in Mumbai. I, I thought that was a real sort of uh, – it was a wake-up call to a dystopian future of social injustice taken uh, gone wild. You know, we're just the mega rich. You do these shows to basically every show you did at the, at the comedy store in Mumbai was to doctors and lawyers and tech entrepreneurs <laughs> that had all made it. 
in this mall, this oasis of, of luxury, like Versace and Armani and all the all these expensive shops where the comedy club took place. And then you'd walk out on the street to abject poverty with, you know, five-year-olds walking around naked in sewers. And it's like, what? How, what? <laughs> how is this happening? <laughs> you know, you'd see a Lamborghinis on streets where, you know, there's guys that have visible signs of leprosy. <laughs> you know? Very interesting, weird world. Uh, it's hard to stay cheerful for your show after you step up. Very hard. Very hard to stay cheerful for your show. Uh, and addressing it was even more. I would try to address it sarcastically all the time about uh, when I talk about karma. <laughs> and, and like, uh, so what, what are you guys that are rich expecting next life exactly? <laughs> Living next to these people. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, it, but it, it's always interesting to be inside of another culture. And you don't want to judge too harshly because you didn't grow up there and you don't know the nuances and you don't know the, the different sort of. I learned a lot about the racial, um, like the, 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 the tensions between the religions, particularly Mumbai, because it was post uh the Muslim uh, shootings when we were there of uh, the guys from Oh Pakistan yeah, when they took that hotel over. What yeah. was it? The, what was the, the, um, the Taj or yeah. something? Yeah, and that was the first hotel we were supposed to be staying in, mm. but they moved us to a different one. Uh, Did you see that HBO documentary was on that? And the guy they had the the telephone recordings of the guy yeah. directing these kids mm-hmm. and to like and telling them that like uh, killing a, a Jewish life is um, you know more points. <laughs> It was the first, uh, what do they call it? The first web-based terrorist act where they would Google, they held that guy in that room and they Google searched his name before they were deciding whether to kill him or not. Um, And the only thing that saved him was a bomb blowing up in the second room because he was pretending he was just a a normal guy, but he turns out he was a billionaire head of a company and and, yeah, very interesting sort of scenario that that they went through and terrifying. You know, we, we went and ate these cafes and everything that got shot up and yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Uh, yet they still coexist, and they still there's not this everyday tension everywhere. Like right afterwards, they didn't sequester the Muslim population or anything like that. They they it's more directed. It's interesting how like they didn't look at it as an Islamic thing so much as they looked at it as a Pakistani thing. And a lot of people forget that India is actually the the largest Islamic country in the world. I mean, you've still got like 200 million um, Muslims that live there. Uh, inside of the country of 1.3 billion, you know, but uh, it's still that's a bigger population. So it's they 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 didn't over, they they didn't act like we did, <laughs> you know, the way we looked at these this one group and said, well, clearly they're all evil, <laughs> you know, and it's just an extremist sect. You know, well, I think a lot of people don't realize that Pakistan and India were also once one country. Who doesn't <laughs> who doesn't know that? I think a lot of people. <laughs> really? Yeah, the partition. When yeah. did that happen? World War Two? Oh, it was uh, originally. It was it was talked about when they were fighting for their agreed upon their independence, but they didn't actually partition. I think until fifty nine, and that was because of uh, Nehru and um, was it Nehru and uh, the other feller? Uh, what the heck was his name? Oh yeah, this is this is good while I sit here and ponder. But yeah, they, they divided and then they had East Pakistan before it became Bangladesh. And, uh, yeah, to, uh, it, it was a sad thing. It was the one thing Gandhi didn't want, you know, but the British did it on purpose because they knew if they got them to sort of uh, be on edge about it, they'd be easier to control post-colonialism. Yeah. Wow. The divide and conquer thing, it works so well. And they did it already in the Middle East. I mean, look why Iraq's such a horrible place. They combined 
three countries that were only, you know, one and put a minority in charge. That was the Balfour Agreement in 1919. Again, this is supposed to be a comedy and not a historical. No, this is a, Jesus Christ. This, this, yeah. uh, this I, episode I wanna, is packed with knowledge. I want to talk about it. What do you want to like? How do you want? Okay, what's the greatest vacation you ever took in your life? Uh, I haven't yet to have a great vacation. <laughs> um, I went to uh, the Cayman Islands uh, to do comedy. And that was tough because they canceled my, well, they confiscated all my porn on my way in. I couldn't believe that. You couldn't have pictures of naked women going into a place in the modern age. Well, wow. um, yeah, very weird. Like, what am I supposed to do? Get laid? And uh, <laughs> that was pretty difficult. And I ran into an ex lover of mine, this girl that I hadn't seen in years, you know? And that was a shock. If you ever run into somebody that you used to be in a relationship with and they've gotten older and you see the effects of age on them, sometimes it's pretty shocking to your core. Like, she'd gotten, well, she, Gotten bigger, lot. She put on thirty pounds. That's roughly about what I'd say she put on. I know it's awkwardly quiet in here because you know it's, you're not supposed to bring that up. But I uh, I mentioned it to my buddy that was with me, and he said something I thought was classic, and I'd like to expound on. He goes, "Oh yeah, where did it land?" And I thought that's such a great statement, though, because it illustrates how unfair our two bodies were designed. Because it can land good on a girl. We've all seen it land good on a girl. It never lands good on a guy. We don't get that benefit. Hey, Jim put on thirty pounds. <gasps> Where did it land? Well, you fucking know it landed bad. You just do. You know, like he's got a hump that sways when he walks. You know, he's just got a hypnotic left tit. I can't stop staring at. You know, there's no place good on a guy where fat goes, mmm, that looks good, you know? Like, there's one place it could land, but it won't, no matter what. This is fat-free right there. No fat. Evilly enough, it'll land all the way around there and make there look like it's sick and quicksand. <laughs> Whereas on her, it was a perfect hit. It was like seven and a half, seven and a half, like a nice hit, you know? Now, you guys are good at math, and you're going, that's only 15 pounds. I believe you said 30, Mr. Comedian. And I'm like, well, yes, I did. Well, let me show you where the other 15 landed. To me, next girlfriend. Oh. Now, before I continue here, I have to give you a little backstory. When I was a young man, I was attacked by the media in its various forms, by MTV, perhaps, or Playboy, maybe. And it used to sell, tell me this message. It would sell it to me rather aggressively. It would tell me this thing again and again. You like a little bum. You like a little bum. You like a little bum. So I'd go, oh, yeah, I like a little bum. So when I'd come across a big bum, I'd, I'd run away, but I'd have a chubby, and I wouldn't know why. <laughs> Now, as I got older, I happened to find out that I don't necessarily like what they're telling me I like. I like a big bum. I fucking love a big bum. You know what a big bum says? A big bum says, welcome home. That's what it says. It just, it's awesome. It's, and the best thing about a big bum, if you haven't tried one, when you get one right in front of you, you push it away, it comes right back. Push it away, it comes right back. That's fucking awesome. Look at you, look at you, look at you, look at you. One side, two side, one side, two side. You ever grab a girl with a bony bum and push it away? Wham! Her head hits the headboard, she passes out. <laughs> oh, rape is funny. she was with her bigger bum. Don't. You can't convince 
convey that concept, and you can't convey it across in a, in a way that, that it's acceptable, because immediately she reacted negatively. She's like, oh, you think I'm fat? You think I'm fat? I'm like, no, I think you have a beautiful big bum. I think it's nice. <laughs> and you can't, they can't accept that. And then that's when I realized she was attacked by the media, too. The media attacked her through all the magazines that she reads. Ella, Voga, Cosmopolitan, Chatelaine, all lying to her about what beauty is. I remember looking in this Elle magazine she had once, and I flipped it open. I was looking at a picture across the middle of it. She was in body paint, this model. And I was looking at the picture, and you could see every rib on her. Every rib. All the way down to the bottom. Like, who the fucking stopped taking a picture right there? She needs to go to a hospital or something. You know, what's sexy about that? Oh, look, you can see her heart beating. Ooh, like, there's nothing attractive there. And then I start thinking about the guys that pick these models and all these magazines that are set out there to make women understand what the beauty is supposed to be. And all those guys that work in Paris and New York that pick these girls aren't into girls in the first place. Why the fuck are they choosing? There's a disconnect from reality in this situation that's unfair and wrong. And by the way, it's a complete lie that we like thin, thin women. We don't. We like jiggle. Guys fucking love jiggle. As a matter of fact, we don't have a choice in the matter. We use it. We like jiggle because we used to hunt squirrels in the woods for 50,000 years. We notice anything moving out of the corner of our eye. That's how we stayed alive when we hunted. We love sort of things moving. That's why when you talk to us in front of the TV, by the way, we can't hear you. It's the orientating response. We're attracted to blue. I smoke a lot of marijuana. I know. I know. It's such a controversial statement to be said in Vancouver out loud. But I've broken some new ground here tonight. What, uh, what have you most gotten out of living in England? Uh, I enjoy the English very much. Um, I, it's just pushing myself to, to sort of do different style of comedy than I could back in North America. I love comedy in North America, don't get me wrong. But you can just take bigger chances here. The crowds are a little more forgiving. They give you more time. That's the single biggest thing. Like, you know how you always were rushed to do a setup? Like, if you didn't get to this punchline soon, the crowd was totally going to lose interest. Uh, kind of like probably the podcast for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but like, I love this one will be my personal favorite episode <laughs> that I listen to uh, while I'm, most, while I'm most, running. Most turned off at 15 minutes in. <laughs> um, no, uh, but you could. Uh, when I first got here and I watched comics set up a joke for a minute. And like, and then it'd be like, oh, okay, well, so that was just one joke that was set up for a minute. And they do like 10 minute long setups. I mean, you could probably get away with one minute long setup in your act back in North America. But if you did 10 in a row, unless you're doing something billed as spoken word, you'd be fucked. <laughs> you know? And uh, I do love that. And the complexity and the curiosity and the worldliness of their jokes. Like they can joke about every country here, whereas back home, yeah. even in Canada, you can't joke too much about the UK. You can joke about the US as much as you want. But in the US, you have to just pretty much joke about the US and maybe a little bit about the globe, but they kind of lose interest pretty quick. Yeah, and they have a general knowledge about pretty much everything. Yeah. You know, um, I've done jokes about uh, my wife being Hindu, even though she's not Hindu, she's Indian. I, I'm oh, man. Po poetic license. But here people, they, they, they know... The Hindu religion and gods and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, you can uh, you can make references that in North America are lost on some people. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And, but the, there is a positivity there. I, and one thing I have noticed about the U.S. is that there's a broad scope elevation uh, in certain groups that are trying to be so hard to be better. And you see it in a lot of movements. And I don't want to be overly negative. It's unfortunate that there's so much polarization that still takes place. And there's an underside that definitely doesn't want to become like that. But the ones that are getting better 
are getting better. And as much as you hear a lot of negative stuff about the U.S. here, I always like to remind people that there's more Nobel Prize winners out of the U.S. than any other country on the planet. There's more intellectuals. There's more uh, people that have uh, that have made amazing steps forward and great ideas and great philosophy and great stuff like that. But we just got to remember that it's an island of 10% in a in a sea of 80% of ambivalence and 20% of absolute abject hatred. <laughs> so that's 110%, by the way, which is what Americans give. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the point, like, in, uh, there's so many great Canadian comedians over here, uh, and, you know, I'll be backstage in London, hanging out and talking with them, and, you know, old, good friends, and then they go out on stage and, like, just talk about Americans like they're dogs, I'm like, hey, shit. I never do that. You never do that. No. And you, you, and that's what I love about you. You never do that. No. But some other comedians... It's probably because uh, I'm a dual citizen. <laughs> <laughs> The secret is out. I never knew that. Are you a dual citizen yeah, of the U.S.? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'm a border baby is what they call us. Uh, closest hospital to uh, when I was being born was on the other side of the border. Uh, Boom. American really? citizenship for life. So you're born on the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Two, two Canadian parents, Canadian brothers and sisters. <laughs> I'm the American munch. But I remember uh, the last time I did Montreal, just for last festival thing, like four years ago, this... Uh, Comedian from Montreal was asking me, um, he was asking me for advice and he said he wanted to move to New York City. And uh, I said, honestly, bro, if I was Canadian, I'd move to London. Yeah. I go, because if you moved to New York, you got all these lawyer fees and filings with the government. It's going to cost thousands of dollars where, well, you know, the Commonwealth. It, no, you don't get any advantage. You don't get a benefit? No, it's the exact same immigration policy that you go through, that we go through to come to the UK. Really? So it's yeah. not... Oh. Yeah. No, no. I thought you guys had an easier yeah. leg up here. Only if you're under 30, you can get a two-year uh, holiday work visa if you're not married. And that's uh, they're limiting those immensely. Uh, so there's really no advantage that way. But I would say the advantage being is that London is the greatest city for comedy in the world right now. I mean, the fact that there's probably 80 gigs, paid gigs... In central London. Yeah. <laughs> like, where yeah. else is like that? New York's amazing. I love New York. My heart aches and wishes so much to live in New York. But the financial reality of it, it's an island of millionaires with, you know, low dollar paying gigs for comics. And if you don't have a writing job on SNL or, or one of the talk shows, you, where, the, you gonna, where the fuck are you going to go? It's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other, you'd be on the road all month to pay for your flat or your apartment that you'd never see. So there's no point. You know, I'd love to live in New York, but that's only after my fucking, you know, my book on philosophy and taxes gets hits the bestseller list. <laughs> your, uh, your, your, your uh, B theory book. <laughs> yeah. No, I came up with a with a with a tax theory that I think I'm going to try to write into a book that that unites both conservatives and liberals together. What's the tax theory? Ah, it's pretty simple. Uh, okay, because you knew this show was going to evolve into tax theory at some point. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the, the whole notion, and this is one of the things that I have complete consideration and, and compassion for when it comes to the sort of the left-wing writing off of like how awful right-wingers are. I get, I get right-wingers. I get the idea of having pride and not wanting somebody to take away what you've earned and what you've put effort in when you think people around you don't or don't care or don't have laziness. But the problem that's missed in that is this uh, artificial idea about uh, we start from an equal footing. So what we have to do is provide an equal footing. The other thing is, is they don't want to pay taxes on what they earn. That's fine. I, I'm okay with that. But here's the one thing that you have to pay tax on, dying. So my idea is, <coughs> is that uh, no taxes from the time you're 21 until you die 
zero, but 100% tax the second you <laughs> So you get to make whatever you want. And the fact that you can't leave a single penny to your children except for wisdom and love makes you want to leave the world in the best possible condition for your child to live in, since all children have to experience the exact same equal upbringing, equal schooling, equal health care, equal support. Okay, so all of your money goes back into the system. Plus, that creates a rapid turnover of financial capital, creating a very liquid economy, not caught up in, in, in long-term capital builds that last generations that create archetypes and powerful movements. So this frees democracy up for each generation to actually have their say, right? Uh, and you have this constant liquid capital. You have no more dynasties of families for years and years that would have focus. Yet, completely no taxes and self-made, you fucking run with it. Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, you're tax-free your entire life. Now, if you're a right-winger, you got to fucking support that. That's a great system, but 100% tax when you die. Now, <coughs> there'll be religious connotations and people will go, oh, but what about trustment? There'll be 100% prosecution of all your wealth if you find a, a loophole. So if, if you leave anything to anybody, boom, that you, you get wiped out to zero at that moment. You still have your social infrastructure that's paid for. But I think it's a fair system. And the right wing's got to fucking love that. And the left wing's got to like it too because we've taken care of healthcare and your basic living supplies. And, you know, you can get by on that. I think there's something really amazing about that. It's simple, it's honest, level playing field. I love it. Yeah. What are some of your other uh, Pete Johansson philosophies? Oh, uh, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Okay, okay. I didn't know you had a tax theory in, in, uh, in your cranium. You want to get into sex? Yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> you can't fuck the love out of somebody. So get over your jealousy. <laughs> wow. I think that will, that will be the sentence that promotes this episode. You can't fuck the love out of somebody. Yeah. Men and women have to get over their jealousy, understand that love and sex uh, can be together, but can be separate. And it's more men, I think, than anything else, because we've been persecuting women by not allowing them to sexually exist as they are biologically designed through our own personal fears and our own social structures and our own uh, sort of insecurities. And the fact that we're jealous about uh, women's sexuality has come down to some of the cruelest laws that both religion and man have ever created. And we have to allow women to have some fucking freedom and not get fucking flipped out about it. And uh, that comes down to no more alpha male bullshit, you know, violence over jealousy. Just understand that if somebody loves you, no fucking dick or no vagina is going to suck the love out of a dick or, or pound the love out of the person that you love. And just get over it. You know, love is beyond your genitalia. It's, it's about the honesty. And when you think about every type of cheating when people get pissed off at anybody, it's about the, it's about the lie. It's always about the lie. It's never about the, the, the penetration. So why not get rid of the lie and just have an open relationship with whoever you love? Wow. Yeah. I think you. I'm, I, I think I'm speaking to uh, the future Canadian Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> After the pandemic that affects uh, this virus gets loose that uh, kills people that aren't polite or courteous, wipes out two thirds of the world's population. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> what should the rest of the world know about Pete Johansson? Uh, it's not nothing important, man. I think you're a beautiful guy. And just Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, I. I I love talking to you. I think this episode, Jesus Christ, you opened the floodgates of knowledge. And I didn't do anything. I just talked about things I admired. We, I contributed very little. The, the, the one thing that I just love in this life is the gift my mom gave me of curiosity. And I think a lot of people have, and they should celebrate it a lot more. You know, And it's what leads me to my style of comedy and what I like. 
and why I find weird shit to sort of be focused on all the time. Because uh, I don't know if you ever wiki click. I'll spend like hours on Wikipedia where I just I'll read something. Hold on, what's this? And you'll click a hot link and just go to another hot link, go to another hot link. You know, just different ideas that just stimulates you. I can spend just hours upon hours. Of course, I don't have a day job. And <laughs> you know, it's comedy research. Yeah, but it's also a privilege that I, I think about too, that privilege that I have to lie in bed and do that and the advantage of this global lottery that I won being white, speaking English, growing up in a first world nation. I'm one in what, 30 people that could have done that? And here I exist this and I talk like this, but what kind of action that I do? So then I'm overcome by guilt and I try to you know think about that and balance it out. But I don't have any answers. I don't have other than I just... Ugh, you know, I just wish things were a little bit more fair. Yeah. A lot of funny in that. I use animals to sort of illustrate that. <laughs> what other stimulating knowledge nuggets have you discovered on Wikipedia? Like uh, just uh, tantalizing factoids. Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I can't. It, a lot of it's about bugs and animals. <laughs> I just, it's, you see, your, I see a lot of like our own personal sort of, uh, anthropological origins when I when I look at animals and I, I look at the things that we're up against as humans like when it comes to sort of like how certain ones of us feel more superior like there's this sort of inbuilt sort of like uh, you know like American exceptionalism or um, the, the ruling class sort of idea of the plutocratic sort of right uh, these things come from sort of a when you look at herd animals and predators and things like that and it's like uh, another great argument we've always argued biologically for our sort of evolution like there's clearly a path you know you know through the 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 origin of the species but we never really talk about how the proof also exists in our sociological reactions like we're so much like apes and we're so much like you know the, the bonobos that are south of the desire versus north of the desire the south ones being the peaceful ones that don't kill and the northern ones that murder their friends and eat them <laughs> you know, like just this social sort of uh, uh, quality that we possess so much like animals. I don't know. I just thought, I just find animals such a window into our own human sort of behaviors. Yeah. yeah. George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, hey. Some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah look at that feller. Another hell of a book. Yeah. Uh, I, mi I miss that time, though, with those guys. At least they had a noble war to rough, rush off to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no noble war that we can sort of pack up and run to. Where everybody worked together. Yeah. Recycling and pulling together as a nation. And <laughs> well, the two experiments that took place in Spain in their, in their, uh, in their war, you know, like the, the anarchist versus and the communists sort of each trying their own sort of theories to fight the fascist overlords. Like those were, that was the trifecta. It was like a, it's almost like Dostoevsky's novel of the Brothers Karamazov with camps, <laughs> you know, just fighting for power and then watching the, the communists turn on the anarchists, sell them out, execute them, and then get overtoppled by the fascists. It's like, fucking hell, so neat. <laughs> so neat. <laughs> <laughs> what is the greatest advice you've ever been given as a comedian Mark Marin once told me after you bomb don't stick around the club and try to find the one person that liked your set <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was great advice he's like just leave just leave tomorrow's a new day don't don't you'll, you won't feel good you won't feel good about yourself just get out of there get yourself some ice cream I, th I might have added the ice cream but if you find yourself getting too fat then you've bombed too much and it's time to quit <laughs> wow Great advice. Yeah. Uh, Pete, I respect you. I you love you as a human being. I love your comedy. And, uh, you know, I, 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 this, is, this has been a fantastic hour of uh, 
knowledge and wisdom. Well, also, if people have a chance, check out some Canadian comics that are amazing out there. You know, like there's Rob Pugh, who's an incredible comic. You should have Pete Zedlacher on this show if you ever have a Don't chance to. Don't know him. Where does he live? There's amazing Canadian comics that are sort of skirted over by the rest of the, uh, the world. Uh, Rob Hughes, a great one. Uh, you know, Craig Campbell, who lives over here, is fantastic. I love Glenn Craig. Wolf. Love Glenn Wolf. Um, Phil Nickel. Phil Nickel, yeah. Uh, just uh, there's so many good Canadian comics. Just off the top of my head, I didn't think I was going to mention them. Darcy Michaels, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's specifically for Darcy. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like, there's just there, there's just a lot of great Canadian voices that are doing some sort of interesting intellectual mixed with funny. The one thing Canadians I I do know is like we know to kill. But it will also try and slip a message in at the same time. And I love that. I love that we always know it's our job to make you laugh. We're not going to leave you fucking just sitting there going, was this a comedy show? (laughs) We'll always do that job too. But then there's another layer on it. And there's so many great comics out there doing that. Yeah, and I I love performing in Canada. Because my favorite audiences are are multinational, multi-ethnic, and kind of, you know, knowledgeable. I mean, like you were talking about the... The English audience is being just yeah. kind of aware of so much of the rest of the world. But don't overpaint Canada like it's an oasis because, I mean, you've probably experienced I think I've done that. I think yeah, you've yeah. straightened me out. I but didn't realize a, they had taken such massive, a hard right turn. Massive bastions of, of redneckiness in Canada just as well and intolerance. And it's, our, it's the job of all comics to sort of uh, laugh and sort of gently maybe make them think about things differently. And you know, so. Okay, I'll stop giving Canada so much credit. <laughs> yeah, please do. You have other co- countries that are really trying to do something different credit like freaking Denmark or Norway or, you know, or Ghana. Ghana. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, In closing, is there any words of wisdom or advice you'd like to give to the people of the earth? Go out and support Tom Rhodes, folks. I'd really, really like to see you guys get out there and just hit his shows. I mean, buy some of his products. I mean, I don't want to ever, ever hear that Tom isn't fucking loving his comedy career because it depresses me because it takes away my hope. So if you ever want to do anything for me, make his life better. You told me the sweetest thing in Edinburgh when we were talking. You said, you know, I think this is uh, this is your year. A lot of people uh, so. love you, and well, I thought that was that was really touching. You have a quality that I've never been able to muster, which is uh, other people liking me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I know certain people like me, but the majority are just—it's a sea of oh fuck, he's hard work. Um, I can't help that. But uh, no, but I love I, I love watching like funny, good. I, I, when I watch your material, it's always got like a point. It's a, it's illustrative. It's a, it's example based. It's cognitive. It has a twist. It has all the sort of qualities I like, rather than just pure silliness, which it also has a level of too. That's what people need to see more of, you know, rather than the Nicki Minaj of comedy that they're fucking getting everywhere else. <laughs> I had to throw it in there. I, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, it's going to bring her up. I am a, 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 I am a huge fan of Big Brown Ass. I'm glad oh, you threw wow. that in at the end. But uh, I love you like a brother, Pete. Thanks, man. Long may you run, brother. Cool. When long, do I get paid now? Long or may you run. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Cab fare. Like, like New York. I love you, man.